Our guest preacher uh, for this morning, as we uh, mentioned before, uh, probably at this point needs no introduction, but I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, knock that out all the same. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to meet Ashley Dusenberry, uh, Ashley uh, has been in pastoral ministry uh, for the last 10 or so years. He could uh, firm those numbers up. Um, but uh, he attended Covenant Theological Seminary, served at Grace Presbyterian Church in Fort Payne, Alabama, uh, and presently serves at Covenant Presbyterian uh, in Cleveland, Mississippi. He is married to Catherine. They have three children, Waverly, Darby, and Sully. And uh, they are Memphians from way back when. And so uh, they, they, they get you. Um, so we're glad that you're with us. Look forward to hearing uh, God's word brought from you. Thanks, Ashley. Thanks, Justin. And uh, Catherine, I would just like to say to you all, thank you so much for this weekend and just the, the wonderful time that we've had getting to know you. Um, I would like to immediately apologize um, <clears throat> For if I haven't gotten a chance to know you, uh, if I haven't gotten a chance to talk to you, uh, there have been so many conversations that I've wanted to have this weekend that I just haven't gotten around to it. And kind of the way, you remember that there's kind of a, a, one of those weird conversation starter questions that uh, would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred duck-sized horses? <laughs> well, like... That's how God's wired me for conversations. I'd rather have one horse-sized conversation and then a hundred duck-sized conversations, um, and that that may be uh, one of the weirdest things I've ever said. But um, just wait. Um, but no, I, I really do appreciate, and Catherine, I really do appreciate the hospitality uh, and just getting to meet all you folks. And we we still have some time together, so uh, there's there's a chance um, there. Well, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verses 11 through 22, but really I'm going to kind of range all over Ephesians chapter 2. It is printed in your bulletin there for you, uh, if you would like to follow along that way. Uh, As I woke this morning, one of the things the Lord really had impressed on me uh, is my need for these words. And so let's hear God's word together. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure 
being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Justin said, we are, uh, we are Memphians, and, and I actually grew up in Whitehaven, um, kind of after the time that Andy blew through that place, and so, um, you know, we, we recovered well. Um, but until, until a few years ago, uh, you, I had never been to Graceland. I've never been to Graceland legally. And, um, but we took our, our, some folks from our church up to Graceland a couple of years ago, and we went and did the tour, uh, and it was great. And there was, there was, they have John Stamos on an iPad that, that tells you what's, what you're looking at. Um, and it's very good. You know, this is the jungle room where Elvis shot his TVs with his gold-plated pistols and stuff. And... <laughs> Like it was a great place, but maybe you've done that. Maybe you've toured some kind of a stately manor or a castle somewhere in Europe, and you've gone to one of these these old homes, like the Biltmore House or something, or Highclere Castle, um, aka Downton Abbey, or somewhere like that, and you've kind of marveled at kind of the scale of the rooms and the beauty of the the decorations and just kind of the the opulence that is sort of surrounding you, the, the plushness of the shag carpeting uh, in the jungle room, that kind of thing. Um, and for me, and I suppose it's for probably most people that go through those houses, like it's all about the libraries, right? Um, and just kind of going into this library that maybe there's a spiral staircase that goes up and there's a, there's a balcony kind of around where you can get to all the books that are way up high or there's one of those ladders that's on rails or something like that. And, but imagine like actually being able to sit down with an architect or a designer and you're, you know, you're the Rockefellers or whoever it is and you get to, you get to plan out this, this room. You get to plan out this house and, and, and the best of everything is going to go into this room, right? Like you're going to spare no expense because every detail of that house is a reflection of something. Every detail of that house is a reflection of who you are. You're, you're who you are as a person, what you like, what you dislike. Every detail of the house reflects your wealth and your success uh, and you're going to spare no expense when communicating all of those things to the people that will come and visit your house, that they will get a sense of who you are uh, and just how successful or powerful you are. God is building such a house here on earth. God is building his church. And in the building of his church, God puts all the wealth of his grace and glory on display. And he does that through us, through you, through me, through his mercy poured out on his people, through this great status change that we have in Christ Jesus, where we go from being dead in our trespasses and sins, as Paul says in the first part of chapter 2, following the prince of the power of the air, 
carrying out the desires of the flesh, all these ways in which Paul describes uh, believers in, in their former state in verses 4 through 7, if you want to look in, in your Bible. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. One of the one of the 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 my favorite books books and one of the the books that has most impacted my life is the Ragamuffin Gospel by Brendan Manning, uh, and he says this: Grace calls out, "You are not just a delusioned old man who may die soon." A middle-aged woman stuck in a job and desperately wanting to get out. A young person feeling the fire in the belly begin to grow cold. You may be insecure, inadequate, mistaken, pot-bellied. Death, panic, depression, and delusionment may be near you, but you are not just that. You are accepted. Never confuse your perception of yourself with the mystery that you are really accepted. You and I are the stuff that God is building his church with. That in a real way, we're the, we're the colors that he delights to, to paint the portrait of his redeeming love with. Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As we come to our text in 11 through 22, uh, John Stott says, Jesus has succeeded in creating a new humanity in which alienation has given way to reconciliation and hostility to peace. And so Paul traces our biography through 11 through 22 in our passage this morning. And he does that in three, three ways, three stages. First, uh, what we once were. Second, what Christ Jesus has done. And finally, what we have now become. So what we once were, what Christ Jesus has done, and what we now have now become. What we once were starts with division, however. It starts with separation. Uh, Verses uh, 11 through 12. Therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope in God, uh, no hope and without God in the world. Describing the Gentiles' status before God, that they were called the uncircumcision, and that's just a derogatory way of referring to Gentiles uh, by Jews, that there's this deep animosity that Jewish people had towards the Gentiles of that day. But Paul is saying uh, that, that the uncircumcision and the circumcision, uh, that no longer matters because that is a work made in the flesh by hands. And what Paul is saying that what is more important is the work that's gone on in your heart, that what was done to your heart. But he says before, what we once were is separated. We were separated from Christ. 
that we had no expectation, that the Gentiles of that day had no expectation of a coming Savior, of a coming Messiah, of one who would come and redeem, that they were alienated from Israel, that they were separated from the nation of Israel, separated from uh, the children of Abraham by nationality, that they were, they were strangers to the covenants of promise and, and separated from Abraham not only by nationality but by covenant. And they had no hope that although God's promise to Abraham included them, the Gentiles didn't know it. They were ignorant of God or they were, they were godless. In short, uh, William Hendrickson says that, that the Gentiles were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Paul puts it in a, a little more simpler way in, in this passage. He says that, that you were far off. You were far off. That there was a distant separation between the Gentiles and the people of God. That there was an, unbri- there was an unbridgeable gap. That you were far off from God. And you were far off from His people. And this was their condition, their, their status before, before Christ. This was our condition. This is our status before Jesus. That we are, we are alienated from God because of our sin. We are alienated from, from who He is and what He's made us to be because, because my heart goes in directions that it's not, not intended to go in. My heart attaches itself to loves that, are, that it's not intended to attach itself to. That, that my heart makes ultimate things out of things which are not meant to be ultimate things. And it's an idol factory, right? And also because of my sin and alienation from God, I'm alienated from you. I'm alienated from my brothers and sisters because, because I want what I want. And, and oftentimes that means running over someone else to get it. That relationships aren't the way they're supposed to be. That they're broken because of sin, because relationships are hard that, that in a sense that, that we are hopelessly stuck. Who we once were is hopelessly stuck. And we think that if I can be good enough, God will be pleased with me. But every time I try to be good enough, I always fail. And so I know that I can't be good enough. I can never be good enough. But if I can maybe check all the boxes that, that I think God expects of me and, and do all the things that I think he would want me to do, even if I can't necessarily keep from doing the things that he doesn't want me to do, but maybe I can do some things that he likes, then maybe I can have peace, at least peace with God. But no, really what I am is blind and deaf Really what I am is, is dead. The truth of how helpless I am is that I'm, is that I'm dead. And I'm, that I'm not yet before what I, what I once was is not yet seeing or understanding the magnitude of the grace of Jesus. Really what I am is, is Christless. That's who we once were. That's who I once was. That's who the people that Paul is writing to, that's who they once were. And what does Paul say? He says... He says, kind of like uh, the Lion King, remember. <laughs> remember. Which brings us to the, the second stage of our biography. That's what we once were. What has Christ Jesus done? What has he done for us? Verses 13 and 14. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And as you're like as you're reading, and as I was reading the first you know, couple of verses there, eleven and twelve, you know, you kind of you kind of get to the end of that, and you you get to these these two words. Uh, very smart commentator like people say the the divine adversative, uh, but now, and I don't think the divine adversative. When I read those two words, when I hear "but now" in Christ Jesus, my heart kind of goes, "Yes." Oh, yes, there's something that's about to happen. There's something that did happen in Christ Jesus. You who once were far off, remember that you who were far off once you were alienated, but now, <laughs> but now you have been brought near. You who are far off have been brought near. In Christ Jesus, this hopeless, friendless, stateless, Christless way we once were is being unraveled and undone and unmade. In Christ Jesus, God is undoing this fivefold separation that, that, that happened to us. Uh, no more relational separation between Jew and Gentile. No more relational separation between uh, brothers and sisters. No more relational separation between us and God. But now, in Christ Jesus, the unbridgeable gap has been bridged. That you who are far off have been brought near in Christ Jesus. That, that through union with Christ, uh, it says, he himself is our peace. And that he himself is this, this kind of emphatic language. He is our peace. He is our peace. Jesus, Jesus, only Jesus is our peace. Only Jesus, only by his very flesh has our peace been won. But now... In Christ Jesus, we have been brought near that, that as his flesh was broken, so the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down between us and God, between us and each other. Let's talk about this dividing wall. What is this dividing wall that Paul's talking about? Well, the dividing wall is literally a wall. It was literally a very, very large wall in the temple, uh, on the very outermost core of the temple. And so if you know kind of the, the way the temple was organized, the, the further you went into the temple, the holier the, the places got and the more exclusive it got in terms of who could actually go in there. And so the outermost court was for the Gentiles. There was a court for the women. There was a court for the men. There was a court for the priests. And there was a court or a place only for the high priest, Right. And so on the very outermost court of the temple, that was as far as Gentiles could go. That wall literally divided them, separated them, kept them from the dwelling place of God, kept them from the resources of God's mercy. And so on that wall, there were, there were actually 
signs. There were actually inscriptions that said, you know, any Gentile that goes beyond this point, his life will be forfeit. So it's not like this, so, you know, don't peek behind the curtain. It's, it's more like you will die if you go on the other side of this wall and you're a Gentile. Uh, trespassers will be shot on sight. But because the flesh of Christ Jesus was torn down, the spiritual division between Jew and Gentile was torn down. That that dividing wall that kept Gentiles out and away from the resources of God's grace and mercy uh, has been destroyed because the flesh of Jesus was torn down on the cross. Verses 15 through 18 by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both access and one spirit to the Father. What we once were were aliens and far off. What Christ Jesus has done is to bring us near through the riches of the grace of Jesus. The riches of the grace of Jesus that are on display, that that we have access to the Father. That dividing wall of hostility has been gone. In fact, it says that he killed the hostility. Through the crucified Son, we have access to the Father to whom we are united by His Spirit. What does that mean? (laughs) What does all this mean? It means we have rest. We have rest. We have rest from the performance treadmill. Uh, I've heard about treadmills. Um, I'm told that they are devices that you get on and you run and go nowhere, which sounds delightful. Um, and so, but, but yeah, we live like that, that we get on, we get on this cycle of working and trying and doing and, and getting nowhere. Here's what Jerry Bridges says in, in his book, um, Transforming Grace. Living by grace instead of by works means you are free from the performance treadmill. It means God has already given you an A when you deserved an F. He's already given you a full day's pay even though you may have worked only one hour. It means that you don't have to perform certain spiritual discipline to earn God's approval. Christ Jesus has already done that for you. You are loved and accepted by God through the merit of Jesus. And you are blessed by God through the merit of Jesus. Nothing you ever do will cause him to love you any more or any less. He loves you strictly by his grace given to you through Jesus. I needed to hear those words this morning. I needed to be reminded of of the kindness of God that he has shown us in Christ Jesus. This is the kindness of God in loving one who is unlovable. Uh, This is God working uh, through his mercy, through the riches of his abundant grace to, to bring one whose heart tends to stray so often far off that even though I've been brought near, my heart wants to be far off oftentimes. And God, through his kindness, again and again, through the riches of his grace, draws my heart back to him. 
And he does it, it says, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That our, our relationship is no longer, uh, our relationship with God is no longer defined or, or regulated by these ceremonial sacrifices and diets and washings and, and feasts and everything like that. That now those things which, which kind of outwardly differentiated God's people from the rest of the world, uh, those things have been done away with. Those things have been fulfilled in Christ Jesus that he did all of those for us. Instead, now in Christ, the people of God are defined not by what we do, but by what has been done for us. It comes at us this way. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the types and shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial law. In other words, his righteousness becomes ours. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the the types and shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial law. His righteousness becomes ours. Not only that, but he, he abolished not the requirements of the moral law. The requirements of the moral law still stand, but... He abolished the condemnation of the moral law. So by keeping all the types and shadows of the Old Testament ceremonial law, his righteousness becomes ours. By abolishing the condemnation of my failure to live up to all of the moral law, my sin becomes his. So I get his righteousness and he gets my condemnation. Scott Sauls puts it this way, and I I love this. In Christ Jesus, our judgment day has been moved from the future to the past. Isn't that, isn't that simple? In Christ Jesus, our judgment day has been moved from the future to the past. Verses 16 through 18. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What do we remember? We remember peace. That we have peace with God through the kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus has killed the hostility between sinful man and a holy God. He's killed the hostility between a sinful man and sinful man. That, that Jesus is our peace. That he is the one who laid down his rights so that I might gain the privileges of sonship in him. <laughs> that he denied himself so that, uh, so that I might have all of his rights. There's a funny little story uh, that Dr. Seuss tells, the, the great parable teacher of our time, about the star-bellied sneeches. I love the star-bellied sneech story. Sneeches are these giant birds because Dr. Seuss. Um, and some of them had stars on their bellies. Some of them didn't. And the one that had stars on their bellies looked down upon the ones that, that didn't. But along comes uh, this, this mischievous salesman, Sylvester McMonkey McBean, uh, and his, his star belly machine. And, and he, he then prints stars on the bellies of all the ones who didn't have the star bellies. So now the star belly sneeches are no longer special and that is, they're not, they're not okay with that. They're upset by that. Uh, and so Sylvester McMonkey McBeans has another machine which takes the stars off of their bellies. And so now they're special again. And so, but then soon they just have this endless loop of going in and out of these machines. 
Uh, and so until it says, until neither the plain nor the star bellies knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. And sometimes we can get so protective of, of our group and so convinced of our own superiority that our preferences or viewpoints in and of themselves can, can become idols. And disunity and tribalism happens when, when we're focused on our rights, defending our positions and our preferences. What does this say? What, is, what does the preaching of peace by Christ Jesus mean for us? That It means that Jesus is making us a people who are more and more focused on laying down our rights and preferences for the sake of advancing the gospel in the world. That he calls us to something. He calls us to go to war with our entitlement. That's very hard to do. To go to war with our entitlement to, and to ask God to kind of uncover those idols, those, those things which I make ultimate things which aren't meant to be ultimate things. That you were brought near to God because Jesus came and made you alive and proclaimed peace to you. And unity requires the humility to remember that. Remember who you were. And remember what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. So what we have now become, verses 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple Uh, in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. These words, so then, like what is the result of this? So then, what happens? And there are really three pictures in here that kind of John Stott helped me see. Uh, The pictures of kingdom, family, and tribe or kingdom, family, and temple, rather. But the first part of, of verse 19 uh, is God's kingdom. So, the, so then you are no longer uh, aliens, but fellow citizens. And, and in Roman culture and in Roman society, citizenship was everything, right? Citizenship was everything. And Paul uses his citizenship to, to appeal to Caesar uh, when he got in trouble. But it says here that, that we are no longer aliens. We are, we are becoming a people who are in a kingdom uh, with all the rights and privileges of the sons and daughters of God, that we are, we are no longer aliens to that kingdom, but we are, we've been brought into that kingdom. We who were Christless and stateless and friendless and hopeless, that we have been included in his kingdom, that there's this new international, interracial, eternal society that we have been brought into by people saved by the riches of the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. So there's the kingdom picture. There's the family picture. Verse 19b, that we are members of the household of God. That we are more than just fellow citizens brushing elbows, you know, in this kingdom. But we're members of the same household. That we are brothers and sisters with the same access to the same father. But we're also God's temple in 20 and 22. That Christ Jesus himself is this cornerstone. There was one stone that they recovered from the, the Herodian temple uh, of Jesus' day that was 38 feet long. <laughs> one stone of this temple. 
And it says Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And the cornerstone is the most important stone in the whole structure. As you can imagine, it, it keeps the foundation and every other stone and every other wall square and plumb. The cornerstone holds the whole building steady and it keeps all the other stones in line. And Jesus is holding his church together. Praise Jesus. <laughs> because we need him to hold his church together. The church is God's dwelling place on earth, and we are called to carry his presence into the world. Uh, one of the things that I really appreciate about GCC are the three D's <laughs> uh, that we delight in God, we demonstrate mercy, and declare the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That that mission that God gives us is to carry his presence into the world, that we delight in God, that it's a privilege to tell our story. It's a privilege to hear of how the grace works in, in our lives. It's a privilege for me to hear you tell about what Jesus is doing in your life. I need your voice in my ear, reminding me, encouraging me through the clear testimony of how Christ has worked in you and in your family and in your life, that it's a privilege to see God at work in the lives of the people sitting next to us in the pews. And that that drives us to glorify Him and to delight in Him and in what He does. And we, we demonstrate mercy that, that we, aren't, we aren't supposed to be afraid of the messiness. We aren't supposed to be afraid of, 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 of people's awkwardness kind of getting all over us. That, that I'm not supposed to be so protective of my own resources, my, my emotional resources, my spiritual resources, my financial resources. I'm not to be so protective of those resources that I'm afraid, with, afraid to engage with the people around me. And that we declare the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of my delighting in God and part of my demonstrating mercy is remembering who I was before and telling what Christ has done for me and declaring the grace of Jesus is treating others the way that I have been treated in him. <laughs> Forgiving the way that I have been forgiving, forgiven. It also means leaning on grace. It also means owning my sin. It also means repenting when I've sinned against you and going to you and saying, I need Jesus. I need you to declare the grace to me in this moment because I have sinned against you and I'm sorry. The church is the holy dwelling place of the sweet aroma of grace to our neighbors. That's what we are being built into. That's the call of the church. I'll close with this. This is a hat tip to Sandy Wilson. Uh, but there was a second grade teacher in a Christian private school, uh, Mrs. Wilson's second grade class. Uh, and she was told that she would be having a new, a new student join the class that day. And, and when Josh walked in, she immediately noticed that he was missing his left arm. And that he had been born without a left arm with some kind of congenital uh, defect. And, and all class long, the whole rest of the day, she was nervous. She was, she was terrified. 
She was very nervous that, that someone would say something to embarrass Josh, that one of the kids would say something insensitive to embarrass Josh. But the day went on and, and her fears never came to pass. And never, she never, fears never happened. Uh, and at the end of class, they had this little tradition that they always finished every day of school with where they did the, here is the church and here is the steeple and you open the doors and see all the people. And as Mrs. Wilson was about to this point, here is the church and here is the steeple, she froze because she realized that she had done the very thing that she was worried someone else would do and, and make apparent and obvious to all Josh's lack of an arm. And as she stood there frozen, an apology just sort of stammering on her tongue, about to, to say something, do something, the little girl sitting next to Josh takes, takes his right hand and her left hand and, and puts them together and says, don't worry, we'll do church together. I know. <laughs> Look, we're all one-armed at best, right? We're all incomplete. Like, how do we ever think that we're going to be the body of Christ all by ourselves? Like, the church is a place of needy, broken people. Let me, let me uncover a little secret about myself to you. And maybe, maybe this is a promise, <laughs> I am never going to be the person you want me to be. And you are never going to be the people I want you to be. Like, that's just the facts of living in a broken, messed up world. And, and a lot of times when I'm up here, I am fairly certain, and Scott Sauls points this out in his book too, that, that I am the most messed up person in the room and I'm the one with the microphone. The church is a place where that reality can play itself out in the context and in the oxygen of Christ's redeeming love. Because we all share something in common. That once we were far off, but now we have brought, been brought near. One day we will be made whole, but until then, you are God's gift to me. That you are God's gift to each other. That, that as the church, we are called to be a holy dwelling place for God. And a hope, and, a, and there's a confidence that can never be taken away. And I need you to remind me of that. And you need each other to remind each other of that. And the only reason that we have that hope and that confidence, the only reason we can live together without this dividing wall of hostility coming between us, but coming between us and God, but coming between us and each other, is because this place, this institution, this church has been built upon the work of Jesus Christ, our chief cornerstone. Let's pray. God, our Father, we ask that you make our need uh, obvious to us. We ask that, that in this moment, by your Spirit's power, you show us 
how much we need the nourishment of the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. That by your spirit, you would uncover new areas of dependence in our hearts. And then uncover the beauty of the one who meets all of our needs with his life, with his death, and then give us the hope and confidence to stand upon his resurrection. Oh Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.